0: Hey folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to another episode of Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast. It's May of 2023. And in this episode, we're going to have part two of this amazing conversation that Jack and Jim and Aaron had with Peter Connors, who's uh, an author of some great renown, uh, a deadhead. Um, He's here to talk about the Grateful Dead and boy oh boy do i wish i had been in on that conversation but unfortunately i had the flu when this was being taped so hopefully we will get him back on the show one of these days because as i was editing this i had so much i wanted to say and um we will get there one of these days it's a great conversation if you're a deadhead or a dead fan of any stripe you will definitely get a lot out of this and um Peter has a number of amazing books that he's written about the dead and about other stuff, and they talk about this in the interview. So without any further ado, here is part two of the conversation with Peter Connors talking the Grateful Dead and more right here on Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969
1: podcast. Because this podcast is about the Woodstock Festival, ostensibly and we talked about (laughs) one of their best shows at cornell let's talk about what some people consider their worst show (laughs) yeah as a an aficionado what do you know about it and what's your experience with their set at uh the woodstock festival
2: right so i mean again this is you know stuff that they talked about and joked about the denver sort of famous for like going like having these big opportunities and then kind of blowing them (laughs) and then going, you know, and then going to Nebraska and just like playing something that was, you know, mind bending on a Sunday night. And so the deadheads have this saying, never miss a Sunday night show. And that's sort of the, where that comes from this idea that, you know, it's always going to be the off nights that are, you know, something magical is going to happen. You know, the Woodstock was a good example of this, obviously, you know, it's very hyped and Oh my gosh, you know, so many people there and such a, such a, uh, such a, you know, powerful gathering. Right. But, you know, I believe they went on very, a, a lot later than they were supposed to, you know, the dead, again, we talked about their emphasis on sound and getting the sound right. Um, I, you know, Owsley Stanley was their sound person who is also a very well-known, um, LSD manufacturer. And, um, I, he could not get the sound right that night. And then whatever the interface with whatever the sound system that was already going on at Woodstock, I'm sure there was like a disconnect between what the dead wanted to do and what, you know, other musicians wanted to do as a result of that, things were improperly grounded. So, you know, at one point, Bob Weir steps up to the microphone to sing something and just this arc of electricity, you know, sort of blows him back. Um, and there's actually a line, "Balls of a lightning roll along," and one of the Grateful Dead songs, "The Music Never Stops," that came from this idea of electricity shooting out at at Woodstock while we were singing. Uh, I think everybody was was overserved when it came to hallucinogens, um, and these guys these were guys who had you know pretty heroic uh, abilities to ingest these things and keep going and. I think it, it's pretty clear that that, you know, everybody was just super high. It was really late. The sound wasn't right. Nothing, you know, things weren't grounded well. I mean, it was a recipe for, you know, n- not a good set, let's say. And I, you know, I've listened to it a bunch of times. It's not like you can find worse shows, you know, what I mean like there's, there's, you know, if, if you love the dead, there's always moments, you know, that are like interesting. And um, I like hearing pig pen stuff, I think. You know, he's he's was a, a very intriguing performer. He's probably the most interesting thing that's going on in the in the Dead's Woodstock set to me. Um, but yeah, it's nothing that I would go back to and just listen to, just because it's great music. You know, it's but it's an artifact, and the Dead, you know, did not want to be included or have any part of the Woodstock movie. Um, and you know, maybe maybe for the best than that, I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's that's what I know about the Dead's Woodstock. set. well,
1: I did see um, in one of the uh, anniversary releases of the Woodstock movie, they included "Turn On Your Love Light," and it wasn't bad. All yeah. forty minutes of it.
2: <laughs> right. So, and that's you know that to me again, it's the most interesting thing on there because it's it, it really because of Pigpen, you know, and he he that was the sort of showcase song for Pigpen. And he would have these great raps in the middle, and he'd start, mm-hmm. you know, telling stories and all this different stuff. And it was always kind of a fun, fun wood, uh, fun Pig Pen, this the singer. I am mean, not saying Pig Pen, like everybody knows what I'm talking about. But Pig Pen was a singer and one of the original members of The Grateful Dead who died um, in 1970, I 72. believe it was. 72. was the original keyboardist. Right, keyboardist and you know, a real core. Core member I mean when the Grateful Dead started out it was really like it was kind of Pigpen's band you know and Garcia was obviously very well known in the Bay Area but Pigpen was sort of a showcase person in the band when they were doing a lot more blues you know stuff he he was
1: the Brian Jones of the Grateful Dead
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting yeah I never thought of that parallel so, yeah, I think that's the most, uh, you know, worthwhile listen of the Grateful Dead set. But you'll find better versions of Love Light other places, too. The other thing I'll point out sometimes, and and this can be true or it might
3: not be true, because obviously lots of the bands at Woodstock had great sets, but it, it was a festival as opposed to a dead show themselves, because when they were when they're on their own, so to speak, they can stretch out and, you know, get away from perhaps a mistake that they headed into and come out of it again. Whereas at a festival, here's your slot. You got to do it right here, right now. And if you can't, things aren't going to go well for you. And that's part of my defense of, of that set being besides the, uh, the more important, uh, the electronic, uh, yeah. you know, pr- problems, but, you know, they
1: did a lot of festivals
3: Yes, the Dead right. did a lot of festivals, but, you know, their, their time allotted as, as any of the bands, they weren't shorted, but as any of the bands is always less than what their normal show would have been. So,
2: you know, but they don't have what, an
3: opening set and a closing set.
2: You know, it's also interesting. I think that's a really that's a really great point. And I think, you know, another thing I'll say is the Grateful Dead came out of playing acid tests. Where you know basically it's like you put a bunch of people into some sort of ballroom or wherever it might be, and you know everybody takes acid, and then there's people who are doing painting, and there's recordings going off, and there's visuals going off, and you know the, the Grateful Dead were just one part of that. It wasn't a Grateful Dead concert; it was just you know an event. It was a happening. There were all the different things going on, and the Grateful Dead were also playing music. And, you know, sometimes they were too high to play music. So they would just put down their instruments and walk away. And nobody went like, hey, man, we came for this show and the dead aren't (laughs) playing. And what's going on? You know, I was like, well, sorry, Garcia's, you know, the neck of his guitar turned into a snake on him. So he couldn't play anymore. You know, we had to take a break. And, you know, when you look at it in that context, you have a band coming on. As Jim was saying, this is a festival. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It's not just a Grateful Dead concert. And I think one of the things that the acid tests were great for for the Grateful Dead was taking that pressure off so that they could just experiment and it wasn't all on them, you know? And that's not to say like, you know, this is an excuse for why they played crappy, but I think it's it's part of a reason why the dead never beat the crap out of themselves when things didn't go that well, you know? They wanted the music to sound good and the music was very important. But it wasn't like, oh, man, we had this great opportunity and we blew it and it's going to hurt our career and all this stuff. You know, it was it was about the music itself and whether that was working or not. That's what they were passionate about. And, you know, that's a time when it just didn't work. But there was so much else going on that, you know, OK, so go see, you know, Richie Havens or
4: whatever
2: (laughs) somebody else.
5: responsible for Rob. getting Rob. all of this recorded Rob. just Rob. checking up on you and here you can talk to anybody it's just a little bit less loud freak freely here. this was quite a bit louder than if you back off and i want to tell you this story right now just a sort of a Everything's going to be alright now. I want to know, do you feel good? <laughs> yeah. I want to know, can you find your mind? Oh, yeah. If you can, you better get on out of this place. Yes, yes. And I want to tell everybody a little story right now.
6: Up, but I do. A loop to It's okay. my heart.
5: just easier to do it over a microphone than any place else.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Go ahead, now, do you understand about it now? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you don't understand, you better listen to what I got to say right now. Yeah, yeah. because if you don't, yeah. Yeah. if you don't, yeah. yeah, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna tell everybody in the house right now. The many, many thing that you got to do one more time. Yeah, you gotta think about your neighbors. You gotta think about your friend. Yeah. You gotta think about your brother. Yeah. You gotta think about your sister. Yeah. You gotta think about everybody that means something to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about it now. Yeah. Yeah. Now do you think that you know something? Yeah. Yeah. If you think that you know something, something. Oh god damn it, what's wrong with you? Oh, Get that microphone away from me. God damn it before I fix you righteously. You know, before I got interrupted by that man, uh, <laughs> I was trying to that say. was so rudely interrupted. I was trying to talk a little bit. <laughs> I was trying to say something to all you people who are standing around here. And my main point of business tonight they're is they're that you got to love everybody. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got to love yeah. everybody. Yeah. You know, you may be walking down the street one day. You know, somebody may come up to you and point a pistol in this your head and say, give me all your money. This one, can you hear the difference between this Now, if you have any sense, you know, you're going to give him this. your money. I want this one. But you ain't got no I'm business to hate it. that man for doing that. that? Because you, you know, that? there must be something wrong with him. Wow. Uh, I want to tell you about it one time again. This one has I'm telling about Yeah. This, this one's oh, the whole room. I want everybody to say yeah. A little bit fuzzy around the edges. Yeah! Come on, oh. fight in unison. Yeah. yeah. I want everybody to say yeah. Yeah. I everybody to say yeah. Yeah. Know, do you know what I'm talking about now? I'm talking about somebody who lost a little bit of love. Somebody lost a little bit of friendship. I want to know, do you know what I'm talking about now? you know what I'm talking about now? Yeah, Yeah. I want to know. I want to know. I want to. I think maybe you're hearing what I'm saying. Yeah. Someday Ron will take acid.
2: Did Richie Did Richie Havens open the open? Yes. The festival? Richie Havens yes. Opened with yeah. The festival. On Friday. Okay, that's what yeah. I thought. Yeah, that's such an unbelievable set that he plays. Right. Oh my gosh. With him walking off the stage and he's still just strumming, 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 strumming. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite performances, that that and, the, um, and Santana's set, I think. And then I love the fact that, like, Shauna-Na played, you know, which is, like, to me, just hysterical. And I don't know, I grew up watching Shauna-Na on TV, you know, their little variety show that they had. So when I first learned that shauna was at Woodstock, it was like, oh, you know, it didn't make any sense <laughs> yeah. to me. Um but I, you know, I've, I've watched Woodstock, the Woodstock movie, uh, you know, a million times and seen all that footage and I love anything around it. I think it's, it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's such a blueprint for where music has gone in so many ways with festivals now, um, you know, especially jam bands, which the Grateful Dead were a pioneer of you know, jam bands really latched onto this idea of festivals and have like maximized it. Um, Bonnaroo came out of the jam band scene, you know, that was where sort of all jam band people when it started. And now it's become a much larger thing than that. But you have bands, you know, like Fish, for example, um, early on started to do their own festivals and, um, you know, include all these, include visual art and all these different things in it. And I think, in general, this idea of having you know festivals with multiple bands and all that stuff has really been huge for the jam band scene and community, and ex- exposed new bands to larger audiences in a way that they wouldn't have before. Um, so I think it, you know it's it's really it's an important you know obviously it's important for tons of different reasons, but I think directly for the jam band community, it sort of set up this idea that helped forward that music. Well, being
3: from New York, I'm going to guess that you're familiar with the uh, festival Mountain Jam. Yeah, sure. Right. And th- the last one pre covid was at
2: Bethel Woods. Oh, OK. I yeah. was that one that was that the- uh, like a ski mountain S- ski. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how, how it it Hunter mountain
6: and then they moved it. I,
3: Hunter Mountain
6: Hunter. Yeah, yeah Hunter. Hunter
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that's where it had been since its inception. But for yeah. very vari- various reasons. Uh, they moved to Bethel Woods, and then COVID came, and they didn't have it, and they didn't have it again last year. But fingers crossed, I think they're having it again this season, again at at Bethel Woods. Um, well, it's a
2: great great festival. Yes, really, yes, they always I, have I, really cool lineups.
3: Yeah, I attended the one at uh, at Bethel, and it was it was well worth it. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah,
2: yeah awesome.
3: You know, just one more thing, and I think you even refer to this in in in, the, in your book uh, that uh, if you if you think of the dead as a dance band, all of a sudden things become much clearer for what's happening and what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and you you're you're in your own book, you're constantly talking about dancing all the time. You yeah. know, now I know not every single person is dancing at a dead show. No, you know, it never was true, but. Mm-hmm. you know, more than more than normal, more than normal. Yeah,
2: oh, I was going to say, you know, that that does tie back into that early, you know, discussion we had about re- the difference between religion and ritual and spirituality and all that. And I really put dance in that category. I mean, dances, you know, uh, throughout <laughs> throughout human history has been an important part of ritual and an important part of spirituality. And, you know, I really was able to access that through Grateful Dead concerts and again, this whole thing of having a model, you know, and looking and seeing people dancing this way, which you'd, I had never seen that before. And didn't even know that was a thing that people would do, even in private, much less in public, you know. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, again, for me, I found that extremely liberating and particularly Being, you know, a teenage male who to me, you know, dancing was not cool, you weren't supposed to dance, (laughs) you know, that's, that wasn't a cool thing to do at all. Um, And, you know, sort of growing into my body, and how do I, you know, move this body around and, and, you know, maneuver it, and I'm going to be stuck with it for the rest of my life. And what do I do with this body and all this different stuff, you know, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, here's an option that you can do with your body. And it feels really liberating. And there's other people doing it. So you have this community thing going. And I really like the fact, too, that dancing didn't have to be about like mating, a mating ritual, you know, like you're dancing with somebody. So now are you dating or you're interested? You know, it's like this a very much a community thing. And um, which isn't to say it couldn't have sensuality or couldn't have those aspects, but it wasn't based on that. You know, it didn't have to be some sort of mating ritual thing. You know, it was really celebratory. And um, and you still see that, you know, you you still any dead related piece of, you know, band performance that you go to, you will see those people dancing. Yes. And uh, I think it's amazing. You know, I just think it's such a great thing to do with our bodies while we have them.
3: Uh, I took several pictures at Woodstock when I was there. And one of my pictures is a, a group of three or four guys who are nearby down in front of me and they're standing and dancing. And that's the reason I took the picture because you basically have 500,000 people. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but yeah. you know, thousands and thousands of people sitting and listening enjoying. I don't even know what band was on at the time, but these guys were standing and dancing. I said, wow, they're standing and dancing. So I took a picture, you know, because yeah. the, as you are saying, that's not something that happens at concerts in general and certainly not with guys
2: <laughs> yeah right no absolutely you know there's there's a lot of sort of uh, you know macho like things that get blown out of the water a little bit when you go to to the Grateful Dead to Grateful Dead related things um, there's a photographer named Jay Blates, Blakesburg who has um, he's on uh, Instagram too and you can see but he's taken some fantastic photos of people dancing uh. at shows and he has whole books of photography just from grateful dead not you know he he takes some of the band too but of the scene and of deadheads and he was around i think starting around the mid-70s so it's a and he's still like when the dead played the fairly well shows at chicago um you know he was the official photographer who was on the stage taking the picture so he's still very much dialed in with them and it's worth if you're interested in these things it's it's worth going to check out his photos. Uh, okay. It's it's excellent documentation of the scene like that.
1: Why do you think that, you know, Bruce Springsteen is a celebrated live performer who does something different each night? You know, he has a following, but it's not like the dead people don't travel around the country or the world to see his shows like that. Why do you think there's a difference? If you have an opinion on it.
2: Yeah, I mean it's an interesting as an interesting question. I don't know. I love Bruce Springsteen and I have a ton of respect for him and I've seen him live and, and different things and I really I do follow his career and I I am a fan of his I think he does change my understanding is he does change the setlist. Um I don't think that there is the musical improvisational passages Uh, in his music in his live show so so in other words it's got that energy and it might be different sets and things like that and he's got such a deep catalog to reach into but the music itself isn't improvisational in the way that the Grateful Dead was and I think that part is what kept people really coming back to hear what the next improvisational thing was going to be Um, so I think that you know I think that was a big part of it. And I also think, you know, as we were talking some about before, I don't see Bruce Springsteen fans as feeling like outsiders in the United States of America. And I think a lot of deadheads did feel outside of mainstream culture. So, you know, you want to get together and sort of gather as a group. those people and so there was also that social aspect i think that was probably different than springsteen fans and and to their credit the
3: dead have pretty much always allowed recording their music by their fans um and i'm not sure whether that was a deliberate monetary idea probably not but i mean i don't think there are many bands that have allowed that kind of access just to have it. It's yours. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're we're playing it tonight. And after that, it's all yours. Um, I mean, there there are bands that, you know, have people walking around the audience making sure nobody's not even holding up a phone, let alone any kind of a recording device that, you know, might catch the sound better. But the dead have, in a sense, always allowed that.
2: You know, they used to try and stop it. Uh, They did. So they had the foresight to start recording their shows, like really early on through the soundboard. And Owsley was, you know, a huge reason for that. Um, But they actually, you know, tried to stop people recording. And, And a lot of times it wasn't, you know, it wasn't them. It was the venues, you know, policing that and so forth. But it just got ridiculous, you know, because Deadheads were finding these crazy ways to get recording equipment into the venue and it became this real cat and mouse game. And then basically what would happen is, you know, a, re- a taper would set up something in front of somebody, you know, in section two Oh three or whatever, and like make everybody around them be quiet and get really uptight about it. And somebody would knock over the mic stand and became a problem. And then, you know, you got these mic stands popping up. So it, it essentially, it became such a problem for them to try and manage and deal with all the taping that was going to go on that they just couldn't stop, that they decided to create a section just for tapers and just put them all together. Like, you know, we're, we're ending up having to police this stuff so much and you know it's 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 just taking a ton of energy and time and quite frankly we don't care that much about that you know so let's give them a section so at least they can stop messing with all these other people who are trying to enjoy the concert and that was sort of the way they they stumbled a little bit backwards into this whole idea of of tapers and bootlegs and stuff like that and obviously you know it's it became in a weird way, it became this amazing business model for them that, that was unintentional, but it seeded their music all over the place, you know, through these live live shows. And so it's, you know, a lot of times I think The Grateful Dead did sort of like stumble backwards into success. <laughs> and I think well, taping what, taping is kind of like that.
1: What, what they decided to do is, we'll give you the music, but... Everything else, we're going to make money on. So they went after bootleggers of T-shirts and mm-hmm. other merchandising. And they just said, okay, we own, th- we own this, we own that. And if you're going to sell Dancing Bear logo, whatever, we're going to sue you, the pants off you. But you can tape all you want. We'll give you the music. And right. just everything else, we're going to make money. They started their own ticketing agency because they wanted to control their ticketing and make money on their own concerts and you know so they wouldn't have had the problem that Ticketmaster had with Taylor Swift fans because the Grateful Dead knew their audience and they took care of their own ticketing
2: yeah they you know early on too they they had they were going to you know put out their music on their own record label and one of the ideas was to put it into like ice cream trucks you know and deliver Music to people, through you know. So I think they were always trying to think of different ways to to do things. But interestingly, I think with the idea of the lo- logos and the trademarks and all that, I think uh, that really pushed creativity um, to a new level with Deadheads because it was like, how do you make a Grateful Dead shirt that doesn't use a Grateful Dead logo? And so you found people getting really creative, you know, about like creating their own art that was based and inspired by the Grateful Dead but it didn't infringe on any of their trademarks because you're right. I mean they they you know especially around the time when I was going to shows you would have Grateful Dead productions people going around the parking lot and if they saw you selling shirts with official things they could they would confiscate those and take them away. But you could they would drive by 20 people who had made up stickers and t-shirts and everything that were clearly Grateful Dead t-shirts, even had lyrics, had whatever they might have pictures of Jerry or drawings or whatever. Um, but they weren't official Grateful Dead logos, so that was all cool with them. So, you know, it was like, this is, you know, this is part of how that all came together and how it all operated. And it, I think it also did, in a lot of ways, fuel the creativity and inspire the creativity of fans.
4: Dear Mother, I think I lost it at the carousel. Last week, Jamie took me to the dance, and I haven't been the same since. The carousel must be magic, because I've really been transformed. This weekend I'm going all three nights to hear the Jefferson Aeroplane, the Grateful Dead, and a new English group called Fleetwood Mac. I'm not doing this just to make you and Daddy suffer, but Jamie says suffering is your thing, so what can I say? It's only two fifty on Friday and Saturday, and only two dollars on Sunday, or one silver dollar any time. And don't worry about me eating. The food at the Carousel is fantastic. Please understand, Mother, I've got to go, even if it means risking my sanity. But really, with the airplane, the dead, groovy old Mac and the Garden of Delights doing the light show, what could be bad?
3: How much into collecting tapes were you as a young kid? You know, because they by that point, they were more available, I assume. Uh, Was that something that you really tried to do, occasionally tried to do? How would that work for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely had my own tape collection. I will say I didn't have a fraction of what a lot of people had. You know, I didn't go at it that hard, probably out of laziness to some extent. I mean, you really had to, you know, there was a whole thing about networking and trading tapes and mailing them and trying to get the closest generation to the first, you know, like, so if you have a live recording, every time you make a copy of that, it goes down in generation. So the quality gets lower. So you wanted to have, you know, as close to the first generation as you could. And, um, you know, there was sort of like, there was a lot that went into it that I just I didn't sort of get into. So I I would get what I could, where I could, but I was never hardcore into tape trading or anything. But I, you know, friends, you go in and their whole walls are like covered with tapes and all that stuff. And, um, but, it, you know, so I sort of laugh now when you go to the internet archive, as you were pointing out, Jim, and you just type it, you know, you can pull up any show that the jet ever played. I think about that with like, oh my God, the time and energy that so many people put into chasing <laughs> down these shows. And now you just go like, boop. And then yes. show you watch just
3: pops right up. <laughs> to your point, while I was reading your book, you know, your first show and other shows while I was reading it, I would Bluetooth that show by way of the internet archive. <laughs> so while reading your book about a particular show, I'm listening to the show and I'm thinking, who else could I do this with? I'm,
2: I don't think right. there's any
3: other band that you could do that with.
2: No, not, not to that level. not even close. Well, I guess, you know, now there's fish and they, you know, picking yes. up on that people started to record them like, you know, right away. So that, that was probably the only other band that has that level. But again, they started obviously well after the dead. So the dead have the, they're the rating champs of, how long that's been going on and the, the number of shows that are available. It's insane. I mean, it's really it's crazy. It's the coolest thing. One of the things that Fish
3: does, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, is that uh, if you've bought a ticket to whatever show, the next day you can download that show mm-hmm. for free as part of the buying a ticket. I don't know that many bands have that available to people who go to their shows.
2: Yeah, I, did, I didn't know. I I know that that is a thing that happens sometimes. I didn't know that that happens with all fish shows. So I don't know cool. if it's all if fish shows, do.
3: but my sense is it's many of them, most of them. Or yeah. you can, you can buy the show that the next day if right. you want to. You know? Absolutely. But yeah, I, you can download it if you went to it, which is yeah, like really nice. <laughs>
2: It's great, you know, and it really is. It, it just it just for for bands that are improvisational musicians like that, I think it's a great model for them because basically what it does is make people want to go to the shows, which, you know, these days in the music industry as it is, like nobody's making money off recordings anyway except for, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of people. So if you're a musician and you're making a living, you're probably making it by touring. Maybe through some of your merch, you know, if you're selling stuff there, but but basically through touring and ticket sales. So, you know, for jam bands in particular, that's it's really perfect because those things are just advertisements that are out in the world that people send around and check out and then they want to go see you live. Hopefully.
3: Have you ever been to shows outside the United States, dead shows outside the
2: United States? I didn't No, I would have been able to go to the Europe tour. Um, would have been well, sort of well, my opportunity to, to do that. Oh, yeah, you're right. My first show was in Canada. I did go outside. <laughs> yeah, outside the U.S. light. Right. <laughs> I went to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but I, I didn't. I have fr- friends who yeah. went to the, the Europe shows. Yeah. I, I was just, I,
3: I, what I was thinking is how different would a dead show be or the, the, the audience be at a show outside the United States other than
2: Canada, which, you know, is, is close enough that it might not be too different. But um, I mean, they're, an, they're an interesting band, you know, given their, their size and their legacy and the reputation that just didn't do all that much inter- you know, they didn't really do these international tours and um, that's kind of fascinating. I mean, even in the United States, like they didn't spend a lot of time down South, hmm. you know, there's not a lot of Southern like dead shows. that happened, but not that frequently, you know? Um, so they had, you know, the dead had, they made their living on the East coast and oh, okay. you know so they obviously played a ton on the west coast and that's where they're from, and that's where they're associated with and everything but when it came to making a living and making money and all that stuff they had the east coast dialed in and um they started doing that really early by doing these campus shows you know starting in like around 1970 of doing you know all the in new york we have the suny system state university of new york schools they would play all the SUNY schools and they go up and down, you know, up and down all over the East coast and play colleges. And then basically, you know, you have college kids who went and they had a great time and their minds got blown. And here's a recording. you got to check them out next time they came through and they just did it and did it and did it until they had this network. And then of course the college, you know, venues became larger venues and they became, you know, amphitheaters and then they became stadiums and it was giant stadium or whatever. Um, and and I hadn't really recognized the extent of the truth to that until I was working on Cornell '77, and um, I got that from the from Dennis McNally, who is the Dead's not only their official biographer but also worked as their publicist, handpicked by Jerry Garcia. And I got that directly from him, uh, saying that like the Grateful Dead made their living, you know, their their sort of meat and potatoes was East Coast touring.
6: You know, what's really interesting is I was reading a story about the first time they played Rochester. And they were playing, I want to say, like the U of R's, one yeah, of their the palestra. Yeah, Yes. And the Jefferson Airplane was playing at what is now Blue Cross Arena. And when their show ended, I think uh, Yorma and Jack just went drove two miles down the road and joined them. Yeah. Which I think is a fun story.
2: Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. They started out right playing the U of R and you know, this again, we, we are Rochester is a great, grateful dead town. I mean, there's tons of, you know, Deadheads here. here. Um, there's dead cover bands. It's a really, it's a stronghold for the dead and they played Rochester a lot, you know, and they played obviously in Buffalo and Syracuse, this whole, little area was was a really you know they had a lot of fans here and they cultivated those fans and they came back over and over and over and played you know built it up
3: Welcome to Rate the Record. Here's our first record rater. Young lady, may I have your name and
0: age?
4: Emily Spafford, Spofford, 16. Ah, yes. The record that you're
0: listening to is called What's Become of the Baby. It's from the new Grateful Dead LP. Well, how did you rate it?
4: Well, I'd give it a, you know, 98.
0: Ah, uh, mm-hmm. 98. Well, since you gave the record our very highest rating, tell us what you especially liked or didn't like about it.
4: Well, it's got a good, you know, beat. Uh-huh. And it's... Good to death too, you yeah. know. Yeah. Well,
2: is there anything else you particularly liked about it?
4: Yeah, I like, my, you know, words.
3: Ah, well then, in summation, what's become of the baby from the new Grateful Dead LB on the
2: Warner Brothers Seven Arts label? Gets a ninety-eight, mainly for its danceable beat and catchy lyric. But to tell me, young lady, uh, would you buy it?
3: Do you look back at your days of touring uh, nearly in your book? It makes it seem nearly as much as the Dead were touring. Uh, do you look back at that and say? it was worth it or maybe I could have not toured as much or how do you know no, I you always
2: I, I regret the shows that I didn't go to okay. you know <laughs> I never regret any that I did there were certain ones that I was going to and for some reason of trying to be responsible or something you know or having a girlfriend or something like that I didn't um and so no I never regret shows I went to only ones I didn't go to
3: that's interesting as a
2: high school student
1: college student How'd your parents feel about you being on the road with the dead?
2: Yeah, they weren't fans of that. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't like that very much. And they're, you know, my parents are were conservative. They're very, you know, we're our uh, conservative and you know, pretty straight down the line. You know, as far as those things go. So it was completely, you know, a foreign, foreign and scary, I think, thing for them. You know, to have me disappearing into this scene. And it's funny. I do remember this is a memory that came back to me at a certain point when I was a kid. Um, my family took a trip to um, Lake Placid right. and it was when the Olympics had just come through it was probably 1980 is when the Olympics were in Lake Placid. So we were seeing, mm-hmm. you know, the Olympic facilities that they had used and all this stuff that was really the purpose of going to Lake Placid, but the Grateful Dead happened to be playing there. It was either right before there was some overlap with the Grateful Dead being there. Either they were there at the same time or they had just left and people were talking about something. But I remember asking my parents about this and their response was that they were gypsies and they kidnap you and (laughs) they take you off. Now, my grandmother was born in 1899, and this was her thing growing up. You know, this is not in any way a politically correct thing. You don't say gypsies or anything anymore. But her thing she would always say is the gypsies are going to come and take you away. And I heard of this from her early on. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh, boy, you know, more gypsies. There must be, this place must be crazy with gypsies just waiting to take children away. Um, so I, at some point I remembered that, you know, and of course it has the complete opposite effect where I was like, oh, I want to go with the gypsies. <laughs> I'm going to see, I'm going to do what the gypsies do." Um, anyway, that was a, that was a thing. Yeah, they didn't like it. <laughs> In summary,
3: they didn't like it. They did not like it. Ha, 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 did they ever come to terms with you and being the dead person, deadhead person that you were? How, you know, was there a point yeah. at which they said, "I guess this is what he is"?
2: Or well, you know, they, I'm sure they think I'll straighten up and fly right one of these days. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you know it's interesting because I think in some ways, you know, having I was starting to write books and publish books and all this stuff, it was like. A little bit of, you know, like, oh, okay. Like, I guess you were doing something after all, you know, because these books came out of it. And the books are like a legitimate thing you can point to as an accomplishment <laughs> and hold up and things like that, even if you don't read them. So and then maybe that validated some of that. I don't know for them. But, you know, um, it is a, it's a funny like, oh, so that's this is what you were doing,
3: you know. Um, and you have older siblings. Where, where were they as far as this little brother of ours, going off for months at a time, it seems.
2: Yeah. So I was younger enough that they were all sort of out of the house by the time I came into my teens even. Um, So, you know, they knew the Grateful Dead through the kids who smoked too much weed in their own, you know, classes or whatever. Um, But that was it. So they didn't have any, none of them had a direct connection to the band or anything. And I think, you know, they were were sort of amused and probably also worried about it. And... (laughs) You know there was there was reason to be at different times worried about it it wasn't completely unjustified you know um when i was reading your book and i'm
3: a father and a grandfather i i i sometimes wondered you're a pretty brave person to say all these things <laughs> you know if you know yeah. do i want my kids do i want my grandkids to know this is what i was doing was there any thought like that before you wrote the book
2: Well, I had, so I had, uh, I had three kids when I wrote the book, but they were little, They they weren't even really reading yet, you know, one of them might have just been starting to so I will say, you know, I had written books that hadn't been published. And I started this. I started growing up dead as more like I realized that nobody had done a book about being a deadhead in this way. Nobody had published a memoir, and that really surprised me when I found that out because it was such a powerful experience for so many people. And so I started to write this, and then my agent took it and actually sold it to Decapo Press, who was my publisher. And at that point, that I realized, oh my gosh, like this book is actually going to come out. It's going to have readers, and I hadn't finished it yet. And I really had to make a decision at that point of, you know, how am I going to do this? And I realized like, if I wasn't really honest with all this stuff, it was all bullshit. You know, it's like, yeah. I, cause I wasn't writing it as a novel, you know, I'd already, mm-hmm. it was a memoir. So I had to sort of just pull the trigger and come out with that and be just really, you know, honest with it. And it got, you know, my kids are all aware of it. And at least one of them has read it. Um, but their <laughs> friends will know about it or their friends' parents will ask, you know, they'll find out about it and different things like that. But, you know, I've been through a lot of things and out the other side and been sober for years too. So it's also was a good point to have discussions with my kids about, you know, I'm not just talking to you as somebody who's, you know, sober now and, and all this, like, these are the things I've been through. I'm not going to bullshit you about them. They're in print. I can't deny them anyway. And now this is a good entry to talk about some of the things that can happen when people start to play around with, you know, excessive drug use and so forth. And, you know, we'd be, we'd be fools to say that that doesn't lead to bad places sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you know, and so I think there's important realities around that too, that it actually allowed me some entry into discussing it, but also some cringy moments.
3: Uh, uh, After it was published, do you, did you ever get, do you ever get invited to speak to young younger groups whether they be high school or college, I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, A lot of colleges. Yeah. Yeah. I've spoken to yeah high school and college students and things like that. And um, yeah, definitely quite a bit. I love to, you know, I, I love to, I mean, part of why I really like to write about this stuff is I think that there are really important lessons, you know, that were, that I learned through that community and I continue to learn that are worth passing on to next generations you know, and again, things about how to support each other and, you know, how to take care of each other or even things about like bartering as a monetary system or whatever it might be that, you know, you don't have to be just focused on making money or doing whatever. There's different ways to succeed and, and be a decent person and and all these different things. And so I think a lot of those values that I say were, you know, laid down to me by my own American heroes. This is why I write about these things, because I'm hoping that they get passed along so I love the opportunity to talk to co- high school students, you know, college students, whoever, anybody who's interested in this stuff, because it's important to me.
3: Do you ever get the impression if this group of students has a rough idea of who you are and what it is you're going to talk about, and then you walk in looking like you look now and mm-hmm. them saying, that's, that's <laughs> this guy,
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> that this guy. This isn't who I thought it was going to be. I mean, does yeah. that that kind of thing happen? It might. They never say it to me, but they certainly might be thinking it. I don't know. No, he's not dressed in
1: a Brooks Brothers suit. You know. Yeah,
2: no, but
3: you think some t- some guy's going to walk in with a tie dye? And... Well, unless okay.
2: you be concerned, here. Let's see.
4: I got <laughs> <Okay>. this. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, as long as
4: you walk in with that
2: shirt <laughs> and make it sleeveless, you'll do fine. We got a big skeleton. We got a big uncle Sam skeleton. I just finished this up about two weeks ago. Very nice. So anyway, yes. Yeah. Inked and in, inked with freedom.
3: Right. Right. I know that happens sometimes with, with people visiting the museum. You went to Woodstock. You know, right. I said, well, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I
2: apologize. It's a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs>
6: You know, I was kind of just, it made me, when Jack was mentioning uh, Brooks brother's suit, it kind of reminded me of the time when actually Jerry died. And I guess my mother, my father had asked who Jerry Garcia was, never mind the fact that he taught high school health in one of the Rochester suburbs for 20 some odd years. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother answered, oh, he's the guy who made ties.
2: Uh. <laughs> That's great. I like that. <laughs> it's really good, and
1: has one of the best-selling ice cream flavors on the market, Cherry Garcia.
3: <laughs> right, my favorite.
1: You uh, you sort of alluded to it, although it didn't come outright in your book, "Growing Up Dead" by Pete Connors, who we've been speaking to. How you got out of the life? Did it just become too commercial for you after um, Touch of Grey?
2: No, well, I think you know. Really, what happened is I just I wanted to focus on my own. You know, writing, and I realized to do that I was going to really need to put all my energy into you know figuring out how to how to how to become a writer and how to make a living as a writer, and you know that to me is an important takeaway from the Grateful Dead scene in general is that you know it didn't make me want to just give up you know devote my whole life to following the Grateful Dead you know but it, it did help me want to make a decision to live a creative life and to be an artist and to pursue that, you know. And so really what it was is I just started focusing on my own art and I took all the things that I learned from there and I decided to just put the same focus. I mean, let's put it this way. If the guys in the Grateful Dead were so fixated on following like Bill Monroe, you know, they wouldn't have been the Grateful Dead. They had to focus on their own art to make it happen. And so I knew for myself, if I wanted to make my art happen, I had to focus on my art, not on following the Grateful Dead. And so that's what I did. And that's what really made me just sort of, you know, go in that direction. And and I'm fortunate, you know, in being able to now have all that and then be able to just go and dip back in and go to Grateful Dead-related music all the time and, you know, see the guys play in and Company or whatever it might configuration they might be playing in and see all these amazing other musicians who are now doing really cool things with the music or that I just learned about through, you know, their connection to the music somehow. I'm, a lot of people are talking about Billy Strings now, you know, he's he's got a really big following and things like that. I just saw him about three weeks ago and he played, essentially he just played bluegrass music pretty like straightforward and he sold out Blue Cross Arena, where the dad used to play in Rochester. It was called the War Memorial. Yep. And now it's called Blue Cross Arena. You know, sold out this, this place, this 20-something-year-old kid playing bluegrass music. And he was phenomenal. I found out about him when he played with Bill Kreutzman in Bill Kreutzmann's backyard in Hawaii. And somebody, you know, recorded these things and put them on YouTube. And I watched it. And I was like, who is this kid? I'd never heard of him before. But he's a really good musician. And then, you know, found his music that way. And I think he's, you know, he's, he's stellar. So it keeps sort of nourishing in that way too and bringing new talent around. And it, it's really, it's cool. Does
3: it upset you nowadays when you hear, and I'm assuming you hear it pretty often because I hear it all the time. They just don't make music like they used to, you know, and, and that upsets me because I know there are many, many really good musicians as you're referring to out there now. And yeah. if you just take the time to look, you'll find them. It may be harder to find them now than it was then. I don't. I don't even know if that's true. But uh, yeah,
2: well, and you know, there's there's so much. I mean, you know, my kids don't listen to this kind of music, but I listen to some of the stuff that they listen to, and I really like it, and it's new. And you know, they like hip hop a lot, and and so I hear you know a bunch of new stuff like that, and I have a respect for that, you know, and it's in its own thing. And then there's. Uh, I think right now the jam band scene is sort of experiencing its own renaissance. You know, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in that community. A lot of overlap with different bands playing with each other and musicians. I just saw um, Trey Anastasio band playing with Goose. and, And then Trey came out and played a bunch of songs with Goose and Goose came out and played with Trey. And so it was this great, you know, sort of, um, it kind of felt like a handing off over the torch and like two nights before I saw them, Billy strings came out and played with goose Andre Anastasio, you know, and played all the fish song or something like that. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a neat time in the same way that, um, The early 90s were a really cool time for the early jam band scene when you had just coming on the scene Fish and Blues Traveler and Widespread Panic, Aquarium Rescue Unit, you name it, like a whole bunch of spin doctors. There was all sorts of bands that created that first wave of the jam band scene, the post Grateful Dead, you know, the the jam band scene. I think we're kind of in another period like that happening right now. I think there's a lot of really cool energy going on in the jam band scene.
3: I'll give a shout out to one of my favorite jam bands, Umfreeze McGee. Yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding.
2: Outstanding. And they've you know, they've been real troopers too. They've they've been at it for quite a long time. I bet they've been going for 20 years now and they feel like Oh, they're one of the newer, younger bands or something. (laughs) They're road warriors. They've been out at it for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, very cool band.
5: San Francisco police say that nine persons have been arrested in a narcotics raid on the headquarters of the Grateful Dead, a widely popular singing group. Two members of the group, Rod McKernan and Robert Weir, and their business manager, Danny Rifkin, have been booked on suspicion of possessing narcotics.
1: With uh, Dead & Company wrapping up things next summer, what do you think is going to happen next?
2: Well, you know, we is playing, he plays a bunch of stuff with the Wolf Brothers and uh-huh. I've seen some of that. I really like um, what he does with them when he brings in, you know, uh, uh, more people. He has the sort of core that's the Wolf Brothers, but then he's been bringing in Jeff Comanche on keyboards and I think he did some horns and things like that. So I really like when he does that. You know, they'll all play their own things. Mickey always does his own cool percussive, you know, experiments and, and different recordings and everybody will, I mean, these guys can't stop, I don't think, you know, so I think they'll just, <laughs> there'll be another incarnation or somebody will play with somebody and I don't know, it'll, it'll keep going in some way, shape or form. And, you know, I think one of the really neat things is they keep bringing new people into the fold. So with Dead & Company, you know, Oteal playing bass, well, teal played with um, Aquarium Rescue Unit, who I first mentioned, like the first time I saw O'Teal play was Probably ninety or ninety one with Aquarium Rescue Unit, which was led by a guy named Colonel Bruce Hampton, really cool musician, and uh, you know, now he's playing with Dunn Company, and he'll play with somebody else, you know, and eventually these guys will be the torchbearers because you know our friends from the original core four aren't going to live forever. I hate to say that, but you know, and so they're bringing all these musicians who really get the music and get the spirit of it in a really deep way, you know, they're going to keep going with this music and it's going to get interpreted by them. And and it's just going to keep going the way it looks like to me, it's just going to keep going. I think that's phenomenal.
1: All right. Well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated having you on the show. Thank and
2: you. It was a treat.
1: We'll let you know when this is going to drop. We uh, generally edit these things, add some music to it.
3: We'll have to play awesome. some of the dead from Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, we we love life.
1: <laughs> at one at one of these things, we will have to play the full love life version.
3: So that's <laughs> yeah. up to Scott. We'll make this a three-part show then. <laughs> we might. Right. I,
1: I don't know. <laughs> but thank you so much. I enjoyed I, I know I, I enjoyed your books. I drew, I read uh, both uh Cornell and Growing Up Dead. I I'll have to check out some of your other stuff because the merch merch uh table blues definitely sounds interesting
2: yeah that's a fun one it's a it's a, i call it my sex drugs and rock and roll murder mystery
6: i sort of i had a chance to read it back in october and i would sort of describe it and it might be a little off but it's sort of like what if charles manson actually managed to insinuate himself with terry melcher <laughs>
1: all, right.
6: all right that's, that's one that's way that's, to look at it
3: that's one of the <laughs> one of the people I get to meet that I never even I didn't know know what merch meant until I started doing these behind the pavilion things. Uh-huh. And you know, I, could you give me a ride up? I'm bringing some merch up to the top, and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, I yeah, yeah. And I and and they're it's just so interesting talking to all these people who are behind the scenes. That, yeah. that's more interesting now for me than if I were to meet the the artist, because I wouldn't know what to say to the artist necessarily, but I can exchange stories about working with this guy who's, uh, you know, because at one point I said, I don't even know who it was or what band it was. I said, I guess it's pretty cool riding around the country, you know, and going to all these shows. He goes, well, you know, riding around down the highway in a steel tube at 80 miles an hour is not nearly as romantic as you think it is. It's and, a tough life.
5: It and is. and H- I H- said, Oh, yeah. you know what? Yeah. That's all I so love me. Cause when I get home, when I get lonesome, I just ask my baby your life. Let it shine, let it shine All I need is your life Come on this boy, got to make me feel all right Got to make me feel mighty good Got to make me feel alright. right ah, 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 that's all I need What you think, Bobby? That's all I need. Shine on me, all I need. Shine on me, let it shine. Shine on me, all I need. Shine on me, shine on me. Some of your love. Shine on me. Some of your love. Shine on me. Some of your sweet. Shine on me. Let it shine on ( nào) me. Let it shine. Shine on on me. That's all I need. Shine on me. gotta make a fee. Shine on me. gotta make a fee Yes, I do. Shine on me. It's gotta be. Shine on me. Let your light shine. Shine on me. Some of your love. Shine on me. Shine on me. On me. Some of your kissing. Shine on me it Shine on me too. All I need. Shine on me. It's all I need. Shine on me. It's all I need. I complete. Come on, right up. This has got to be. Come on, me. What's the thing, bro? Come on. That's all. Come on. Come on. Little shine upon his boy. I just got to get some. Come on, please. Some of your love. Come on, please. Yeah. Some of your kissing. Come on, please. Yeah. Some of your love i got to make a feel Feel good I've got so to make a feel Just I like a kid I, I got to be alright Talk about my right That's all I need i ah. good. Pretty good. Gotta be my love, pretty good. Gotta be my love. Pretty goodness. Gotta be my love. Gotta uh-huh. got feel alright. Come on, please. That's all you gotta do now. Come on, please. Ain't nothing else. Come on, please. Ain't nothing else you can do. Yeah. You gotta feel alright. Come on, please. You gotta feel nice and fine. Come on, please. You gotta feel kinda of easy. Come on, please. And you can cook a while. That's what my mama said. Be good. If you go on easy, you be feel good. You can cook a long old time. Be good. Yes, you can. Be 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 what you say, brother? Shine on me, all I need. Come on, shine on me, all I need. Come on, shine on me, some of your love. Yeah, yeah. your sweet little light. Shine on me, that's all I got to have. Shine on me, And that's all I'm gonna need. Come on, please. Have a shine down on me, shine on me. Make me feel so nice, shine on me, so nice and kind, shine on me, got to make me feel nice and kind, got to be, come on please, all I need, come on please, come on baby, come on please, let it shine, got to be your light. Wait
3: Richie and he's lost his chick and he'd like to have her come and find him.
0: And that's our show, Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast, was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, Aaron Shear, Jim Shelley, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not associated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its entities. Come and check us out on our Facebook page. The group is called Keep the Dream Flowing, where we keep you updated on various things that we're doing and give you a heads up when there's a new episode coming. So check that out. On behalf of all of us here at Keep the Dream Flowing, this is Scott Parker saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.